welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. Fundamentally, product managers should be driving success for their organizations. That's what we're about. We do that by providing customers value. The source of that value may be, and perhaps should be, closer to our core capabilities than is often thought. The toy company Lego found this to be true only after being on the brink of bankruptcy, and they went through a lot to figure out how to turn around the company. Other companies have also discovered this principle, which is something my guest calls innovating near the core. He originally explored this in a book-long case study of Lego called Brick by Brick, how Lego rewrote the rules of innovation and conquered the global toy industry. In his recent book, The Power of Little Ideas, a low-risk, high-reward approach to innovation, he studies other companies who have won their market share using a similar approach. My guest is David Robertson, who is a senior lecturer at the MIT Sloan School of Management, where he teaches innovation and product design. He's also the host of the weekly radio show on Sirius XM called Innovation Navigation, where he interviews world-renowned thought leaders about the management of innovation. In our discussion, you'll learn why almost all of Lego's product innovation efforts resulted in millions of dollars of loss, what action turned Lego around and produced growth, and how companies have innovated close to their core to create market success. You'll find the summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 160. Also, I encourage you to grab my guide, The Top 10 Tools and Insights from the First 100 Plus Interviews. It contains the key tools to give you more confidence, influence, and success that we discussed in the First 100 Plus Interviews. You'll find it in the same place all the interviews are, and that's theeverydayinnovator.com. Now, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Dave, thank you for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Thanks for having me, Chad. It was a great treat of mine to be able to see your presentation at a local conference. That was the PDMA conference this year, at least 2017, in Chicago, where you shared some of the research that you have been doing in companies and and innovation. And the research that first came on my radar was you you did this, had this great opportunity to do a deep dive into Lego, the, you know, the plastic brick company that we probably, we think of the most of. And you, you did that a few years ago and really found some interesting things. And what stood out to me in that was, you know, Lego was this beloved company that ran into trouble in the late 90s and started losing money. And they brought in, you know, they, they tried innovation approach after innovation approach, you know, like, you know, Blue Ocean and open innovation and disrupting themselves and walking in the customer's shoes and all these attempts and yet, after a few years in 2003, they were on the brink of bankruptcy. Give us some insights into that. Why did any of those approaches work for them? What was kind of missing from their, their recipe for success here? I did. I wrote a 320-page case study of Lego because I thought, uh, I think we learn, you know, I think we're wired as, as humans to learn from stories. Mm-hmm. And I thought Lego's story was a a wonderful story about a company that had really made just about every innovation management mistake you could possibly make and finally hit on the right formula, a formula that's worked very well for them recently. Um, and, and so, yeah, they uh, 
for quite a long time, they just did great making another box of bricks. You know, they put out a different theme and they'd expand into different geographies. And that drove 14% annual growth for 15 years wow. from 78 to 93. And then in the 90s, as we all know, things changed. I mean, things changed for businesses, but things changed for kids too, for the way they played that all of a sudden, you know, it was more about virtual and digital play. And Lego, by the late time the late 90s had rolled around, was convinced that it was getting disrupted. Um, sure. Sales had been flat from 94 through 98. Um, it tried putting out more boxes of bricks, but that only increased costs. It didn't increase sales. Uh -huh. and so profits dwindled, and they had a, a big loss in 98 and had to lay off a 1,000 people. So... Uh, uh, Clayton Christensen's big book about um, disruption had just launched a couple years before. And this theory of disruption was um, sweeping academia and popular business journals and everything. And Lego was not unreasonably convinced that the brick was passe, was obsolete, and that they needed to disrupt themselves before somebody else did. And they they tried every way they possibly could. They tried to create new play experiences. They tried to add electronics. They created a virtual play experience. They they experimented just every way you could. I mean, if you go through all the theories of revolutionary innovation, you know, the 10 types of innovation that mm -hmm. came out of Chicago's Doblin Group or right. Blue Ocean Strategy or Disruptive Innovation, you name it, they tried it. And um, without exception, they failed. Uh, they uh, they almost went bankrupt in 2003. They uh, they lost a lot of money. They they had a couple of successes, but generally, you know, you can only go so far in what you do um, before customers um, just decide that you're not the company they want to do business with. I mean, um, the way I, I think the best sum summary of what went wrong with Lego is that they became convinced that uh, if all they offered was another box of bricks, they'd become irrelevant, if not bankrupt. And that was true, but there's a huge difference between sufficient and necessary, um, that it wasn't sufficient to just offer a box of bricks, but it was necessary that if they didn't offer a plastic brick, we didn't want to do business with them. And so um, when they went back to the brick, but then they started innovating around the brick and came up with, you know, um, games and stories and, and events at the Lego store. And um, more recently, experiences like the Discovery Centers that are all oh. over the country, um, where they take over um, – uh, stores like department stores like Macy's or JCPenney or, or others that have uh, gone out of business and turn them into big indoor playgrounds and charge you 20 or more, $20 or more to get in. And then when you leave, you walk through a Lego store. Um, those have proved to be pretty popular. And so Lego has realized that when they went back to the brick, uh, companies returned to the brand and, um, uh, they realized that it wasn't enough just to come out with another box of bricks, that they had to surround it with complementary innovations like events at the Lego store or little games or stories, TV shows, and of course, most recently, movies. Mm -hmm. um, and when they started doing that, they realized that you know the, the virtual, the digital uh, games and things like that 
they didn't disrupt the company. They actually complemented it. That when kids play video games like Lego Star Wars, they want more boxes of plastic bricks, not less. And so trying to pursue the purely digital, um, first of all, turned customers away. And hmm. second of all, actually uh, um, lost their major source of revenue, which was the plastic brick. I mean, Lego's fundamental business model is that they buy ABS plastic for a dollar a pound and they sell it to us for $50 a pound. Right. <laughs> and when you have that kind of margin, it's, it's, uh, it's, you can do an off awful lot of things around it to justify that overpriced box of plastic bricks. And we have many pounds of such ABS lying around my son's room. So lots of good choices there. Yeah. Was there a catalyst that really you know, helped them see that? So it sounded like the, a lot of their innovation efforts led them away from their core and they got into areas that customers didn't recognize Lego as, as really being consistent with their brand and they weren't interested in those products coming from Lego. Was there something that occurred to, to lead them back to this notion of the, the brick is our key product and we can look for complementary innovations around it? So the bright, shining uh, success from Lego's period of experimentation, the four years from 99 through 2002, was a toy called Bionicle. And it was this uh, amazing toy. It was the first buildable action figure, and it didn't look anything like any Lego before. Um, it had a ball and socket joint. It, it You would attach it also with uh, the pins that you use in technique. Uh, Lego fans will know what I mean by that. Um, but it was just a very different uh, toy. It was a box of plastic pieces that you snapped together. But like I said, it didn't look like any Lego toy before or since. But what it, uh, what it did have was this very rich story um, that was created by a small team within Lego of these heroes that wash up on the island of Matanui and do battle with this evil Makuta force. And, mm. and every year, it was, it, uh, the battle would go to a different part of the, this island of Matanui, and there'd be different heroes and different villains and a different story, and there were collectibles. Every year, there'd be a different set. So if you didn't get the 2003 characters by the end of the year, there'd be another set on the market, and you'd have missed your chance. So the combination of a rich story and very cool uh, buildable action figures and uh, collectibles with limited time spans made it hugely popular. And without the revenues from Bionicle in 2003 or 2004, Lego wouldn't be here today. It would have gone out of business. It was it was the one successful product that sustained Lego during its uh, worst years, during its huh. years where it was almost bankrupt. And what uh, what Lego learned from Bionicle was the importance of not just developing a box of bricks, you know, that how, how powerful stories were to excite kids to play with something. And so they've really been working on telling stories ever since. Um, a lot of their most successful products, the uh, Friends series, the Star Wars series, the Ninjago series, the um, more recently Batman, Lego Batman, and the... Um, uh, there was Nexo Knights I, I don't think has been as successful. But what they try and do in every case is tell a story that hmm. get kids involved with the, the characters and the sets, and then they can build uh, the, the, um, uh, the, the sets 
and play out the stories and make up their own versions of the stories. And so Lego isn't just making a box of bricks anymore. What I learned from Bionicle is that there's so many other ways to tell a story and all those ways don't disrupt even the the virtual, the digital ones, right? Whether it's a PC game or a, a TV show or, or now a feature length animated movie, those things um, increase the demand for overpriced pla- pra- <laughs> plastic bricks. Um, they don't they don't disrupt it. Thanks for sharing the, the Lego background a little bit and kind of what brought them out that they really need to innovate it closer to their core. And you have some other really valuable case studies that you share in your latest innovation book, which is The Power of Little Ideas, a low-risk, high-reward approach to innovation. What's the main theme of that book? The Power of Little Ideas was the answer to a challenge that that I got from uh, an executive where they said, you know, how do we do what Lego did? I mean, our company is very different. Our industry is different. And I thought that was a very reasonable question. You know, what what was it that Lego did? And so I challenged myself to write another book which would not use Lego as an example. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't quite succeed, by the way. There's still a little bit of Lego here and there. Um, nothing repetitive with the first book. Um, but the whole idea was this whole approach to innovation where it almost starts with the question of where are you not going to innovate? In other words, what's what's that product that, you're gonna, or service that you're gonna make yesterday, that, that you're gonna make today, that, um, you're gonna continue to make tomorrow, that your customers count on you for, that they depend on you to, to deliver. Um, with Lego, that was an easy question. With other companies I've worked with, it's a much harder question. Um, but I think it's an important question. It's almost mm-hmm. a question of what would the world miss if you were gone? Uh, and, you know, when you think about that question and respect that and realize that there's a lot of good reasons not to leave it behind, not to disrupt it, um, but instead to innovate around it, I think that's an important understanding um, that uh, we're, that I think the current thinking about innovation is, is too quick to just pass by. Mm-hmm. In so, some sense, is this innovation that is a little bit less exciting. When you're talking to companies about this, I'm curious about the impression they get at first, because it sounds like it's innovation, which is close to the core and looking for complementary elements that might be less stretching and maybe consequently less exciting for some people. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to be put on that big, risky new project, right? Let's uh, conquer new frontiers and let's uh, try new technologies. But, you know, those can really be uh, very uh, well, risky and difficult and prone right. to failure. Um, they often don't work out. The failure rates are quite high for that. Um, whereas if you just simply look at um, your uh, core product and try and understand, you know, what else can your customers, um, what else can you do for your customers that will help right. them get more value from that product? You know, then then that leads you to some very interesting directions for innovation. But it also may lead you to do things that you're not good at, where you have to go out and find a partner or source something from an external company or, or you know, even in some cases, acquire a company to be able to deliver it. And, um, and that can be difficult, but ultimately very profitable because it, you can make money from the complementary innovation, but it also increases sales of the core product and it can lead you to some very interesting new markets. Absolutely. One of the um, stories that I think was a little controversial 
in the book was when I said that Steve Jobs was not a disruptor. And I think that this is generally true that a lot of uh, companies that, that are, uh, or examples that are given for disruption are actually not examples of disruption. And um, I'm, I'm talking about this uh, very specific part of Steve Jobs' uh, career, which is from 97 through 2006, for the first 10 years where he's back at Apple. What he does there is he sees a company in really dire trouble. Right. I mean, sales are flat, profits are, uh, well, there's uh, significant losses, uh, market share is dropping, everybody's writing off Apple. Michael Dell says the best thing that Steve Jobs can do is to liquidate the company and return the cash that's on the books to the shareholders. But what he does is he gets rid of everything that doesn't look like a Mac, right? He, he just narrows it down basically to two uh, laptops and two desktops. And then a couple years later, I mean, he does some other things along the way, like that round, curvy iMac in 98 and, mm -hmm. and some other things. But the big move is in 2001, where he comes out with the iPod and iTunes. Right. And people say, boy, that was disruptive. And, you know, if you're looking at it from the perspective of the music industry, it absolutely was. Sure. But that's not the perspective that led him to do that. And I think that that's a really important distinction. You know, when he introduced it, and you can go back on YouTube and, and see his Macworld presentation from 2001, what he says is that your life is becoming more digital. And this was really true in 2001, right? I mean, um, pictures were digital, movies were digital, mm -hmm. contacts, calendars, uh, you know, everything was, was becoming more digital. And music was digital. And he said, you know, this is a really frustrating experience to try and find music and download it and put it in a playlist. So what he'd done is he'd bought a company called SoundJam the year before. It was basically an MP3 management system. He'd gone out and gotten some help from Frog Design and others to design this little device, the iPod. Um, and he put it together and said, you know, we're going to help you manage your digital life. And he had a picture of the Mac surrounded by digital devices. And if you think that his goal was to disrupt the music industry, then I'd urge you to go back and read Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, because what he clearly uh, tried to do there was avoid taking iTunes to the IBM platform. He didn't want to disrupt the music industry. He wanted to sell more Macs by mm -hmm. making that Mac more valuable and more useful. And what he did to do that was innovate around the Mac. iTunes and the iPod, were peripherals to the Mac. But I, I tell that story in the book to make a larger point, which is that, you know, sometimes what we think are small complementary innovations, what I talk about is little ideas. I mean, that's the, that's the title of the book, The Power of Little Ideas, mm -hmm. because sometimes those little ideas become big ideas. I mean, they definitely did for, for Steve Jobs and Apple. That, that iPod morphed over time into um, less of a little metal device and more of a, a, a small screen. And the, then, of course, it became a phone. And there, I think, he was really becoming disruptive. You know, 10 years later, 10 years after he started at Apple in 2007, then he was thinking, how can I really change the, the mobile phone business, you know, the telecommunications business? And he was trying to disrupt there. But, you know, the, the, the 10 years before that, from 97 through 2006, it really was about selling more Macs and, and creating this, this system 
around the Mac uh, to make the ownership of Macs more valuable, more useful for its mm -hmm. customers. Yeah, in some way, the iPod, and then, you know, I think it was six months later when iTunes became available, that was really the tipping point that got iPod, people interested in iPod because it was now easy to get your music on an MP3 player, whereas that wasn't easy before. Uh, it it kind of was a gateway drug towards Apple because you got sucked in. You, know, you, you could buy this lower-cost device, really enjoy your music, and you wanted to be able to do the same, have the same experience from your computer. And so th th that was one reason why I bought an iMac. It really did, right? It, it boosted sales. Yeah, it's same for me. Yep. That's a good example of, of innovating around the core, saying no to a lot of things and and focusing on what your brand is really about, and then how can you get more people to buy the products of that brand. Is there another case study that you talk about in, in your uh, new book, The Power of Little Ideas, that would be helpful for us as product managers to think about an aspect there, how we can do a better job with our work? Yeah, I really like the case study of Sherwin-Williams. Hmm. Um, and this one came to me just because I was getting my house painted. And uh, Stephen, my the guy who has a little crew and my and has painted other houses in the neighborhood, um, you know, I talked to him. Uh, he came very highly recommended by my friends and neighbors, and and so uh, he gave me a proposal. And I looked at it and looked at the cost for paint, which was pretty significant, and saw that he'd put in Sherwin Williams paint. Um, I went to my uh, you know consumer ratings magazine and and uh, saw that that uh, Sherwin-Williams is good paint, but it costs twice as much as another paint that was rated just as well. And I said, well, why don't we use that paint? And he said, well, if we use this other paint, then it's going to cost you more. I said, well, how, how does that happen? And he said, well, you know, the this proposal, you know, Sherwin-Williams helped me put it together. When we talked about colors, um, they helped me with a color consultant. Um, they make sure that I have everything I need every day uh, to um, uh, to make sure that when I've got a crew and I'm paying by the hour, that they're working every hour. Uh, huh. And they will even come out, they have come out to the work site occasionally um, when I'm missing something or something hasn't worked. Uh, and they'll let me return uncolored you know, primer if, uh, if I have too much. And they'll help me pre prepare the next proposal for the other work that you might want done. And and so uh, they, uh, he, he took me over to the store, and he showed me all the different things that they do for the the painter. And it made me realize, um, I, well, I, I did a, a search, a, a map search, um, and found that there's more Sherwin-Williams within a five- or ten-minute drive of my house than there were Starbucks. Wow. That uh, they had realized that their real customer is not me, the person who's paying for the paint. It's that painting contractor, that small business that um, um, really needs support. And it's not just about the paint, that if it was only about the paint, they would not pay much more for the paint than they could get at, you know, the Home Depot or Lowe's or other home center. Um, but in fact, they had created this whole, it really is a business to business, but it's a business to small business mm -hmm. uh, type of offering through these physical stores that let them uh, really serve their customer, right? Not me, the end consumer, but their customer much better. And so they had thought very carefully about um, what that customer wanted, what the small painting contractor wanted. And I was just looking uh, before our phone call at, at uh, multiples, and I saw that there's some acquisitions going on in the painting industry 
um, among number two and three. But if you look at the valuation that Sherwin-Williams is uh, valued as a multiple of EBITDA, much higher than any of their other competitors because hmm. they're the ones seeing the most profit and growth. So this focus on the small contract painter is working for them and they're providing additional services to that customer, but they obviously buy paint from them because they're making their business work. Yeah. And so one little thing that they showed me when I was in the store, and I think this was the summer before last, maybe it was further than that, but they had this little device where you put your feet in it and it wraps them in little plastic booties. So if you're coming from outside into the house and you don't want to track a bunch of mud on the right. carpet, um, it wraps plastic around. It makes it very easy and has a whole tray full of these things so you don't have to you know, find where you left them. And of course, they sell that to the painting contractor and the refills and that company does well, but Sherwin-Williams takes its cut and mm -hmm. everybody wins, right? I mean, yeah. Sherwin-Williams is making additional revenue from this complementary product, but also it makes them more valuable as a partner for their customer, the painting contractor. Right. And then the painting contractor also, as part of the proposal, I'm sure, probably talked about how we're going to keep the worksite clean. Our paint contractors will always be putting these on their shoes so that we're not tracking it in anything in your house. And it's part of the overall service. That's right. Yeah. And uh, one, one thing when I was in the store that the, the uh, store manager told me is that they have a frequent painter program. So while there was that, uh, that cost that my painting contractor paid for the, you know, per gallon of paint to Sherwin-Williams, um, what he maybe forgot to mention was that at the end of the year, he gets a cash rebate from Sherwin-Williams, depending on the amount of paint he's purchased from them. Very nice. That, that's a good incentive to keep those contractors coming back to Sherwin-Williams. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So good examples out of your book. In terms of the impact of product managers, so if we're talking about we can be more successful as a business, kind of innovating around the core, looking for similar opportunities, what we're doing now for growth. Is the role of the product manager itself changing? Do you see the role maybe shrinking or expanding? Yeah. So I would say, and this was the take uh, that, that I tried to present at PDMA, that if you're a product manager, you're really in danger of being set up to fail. Um, that... Uh, it is often the terms of competition in a market that you have to do much more than a product, that a good product right. is only the entry stakes, the table stakes, and that you need to be thinking about what are the other complementary innovations? What are the new pricing models, channels to market, complementary products, services, other things that, that uh, you can do that will help make that product more compelling, more valuable to your customers? And that if you're set up as a product manager and only develop a great product, you could be set up to fail. One of the stories I have in the book is about GoPro versus Sony. And, you know, I think GoPro is genuinely getting disrupted now by the smartphone. And so they've been struggling recently. But they had five years of 90% growth. And Sony came after them. Um, Sony tried to develop a... Um, you know, a waterproof, rugged action camera mm -hmm. so you could capture your greatest adventures. And they did. They created a, a better camera by any measure. I mean, it had things like uh, image stabilization and noise reduction when GoPro didn't. Right. It was a third cheaper. It had more pixels. I mean, it's just a better action camera. 
But nobody bought it because they didn't have the mounts, they didn't have the smartphone app, they didn't have the software, they didn't have the social media site, they didn't have all the other things that GoPro has that make it very easy to prepare for and capture your greatest adventure and then turn it into a compelling music video and then send it to all your friends. They didn't have all that other stuff that, that you need to really be, you know, to get value from the product. Mm-hmm. And so by innovating around the product, GoPro was able to hold off a much more knowledgeable, much more experienced, very deep-pocketed competitor. Yeah, and some of those examples you shared made it easy for the brand to grow itself, the the social media site. And, and they had this amazing, and still do, capability where you can just put your pictures up, the video up, and it puts together this really engaging video for you that you can share with your friends. And people see those sort of things, and I think it's kind of a default answer. At least it was, until you mentioned, you know, they're facing a lot of competition from knockoffs now. But but you want that capability. It's like, why would I look at anything else? I want to do that same sort of thing. Yeah, but the reason I tell the Sony versus GoPro story is, think about that poor product manager in, <laughs> you know, somewhere in the bowels of Sony in Tokyo, and they get given this big challenge. They get given a good team. I'm sure they chose a very, you know, respected, charismatic, you know, uh, experienced product manager. And uh, that person and their team worked like hell for months, maybe years, came out with this great product, did everything that management asked, and is probably being blamed for the failure. You know, they were a product manager in a market that isn't competing on the product alone. Um, It's competing on a portfolio of complementary products and, and services. And and so their management set them up to fail. And I think that's one of the lessons for product management about uh, um, this from this book, this Power of Little Ideas book, is that sometimes being a product manager means that you've been set up to fail. It's a really good point. And, and companies do that and managers do that in different ways. As you were reiterating the point of the Sony story against GoPro, I feel that, right, that there's an emotional impact that someone – was very invested in this better camera that ended up not being a success in the marketplace. And I think a lot of experienced product managers have some version of that story because all of our products aren't always successes. And thinking about what does it really take to compete effectively, what other capabilities around the product and in terms of other products or services are needed by the marketplace probably needs to be part of our initial thinking as we go into it. Yes. Excellent. So some good insights from your first work there with Lego, and then more recently, The Power of Little Ideas, a low-risk, high-reward approach to innovation. Appreciate you sharing some of those uh, insights and the case studies, too. And as listeners know, I love a good innovation quote, and I asked you to share one with us. What is that? One of my favorite quotes is, date your customers, don't fight your competitors. And by that, I mean, if we think about innovation as fighting competition, then what we look at is, you know, what's their product? What features, functions, capabilities, pricing does it have? How can we do a better version? And uh, then we go back and forth and both companies become a commodity and margins erode and everybody's miserable. If you think about innovation instead as dating your customer, then, you know, think about when you met 
a, that special person in your life and you you wanted to have more of a relationship with them. Well, you tried to understand who they were and what they cared about and what their their hopes and their dreams and their fears, their passions were. And, and you tried to understand how you could become a bigger part of their life, how you connect to them in more mm-hmm. different ways. And that's what innovation should be like, is how can we date our customer, not how can we fight our competitor? I mean, I think we always have to watch what the competition's doing. Um, but <clears throat> but the, my fundamental argument in the power of little ideas is is uh, it's really a dating book. How can we date our customers? I, I love the analogy, and I agree we have to watch what the competitors are doing. But if we know our customer that well, if we were courting our customer, then we know what they need, and we're we're going to stand out to them as being more important than the competitors. Good analogy. Thank you. Dave, one final thing, which is very important because I think people will want to know more about the resources and the information you've put together in terms of the books you've written and the other work you do. How can we find out about that? Well, I've, I've got a website, uh, robertsoninnovation.com. Uh, That's all one word. It's also abbreviated if you go to robinn.com. That's the first three letters of Robertson and innovation.com. Uh, uh, you can find links to the books and to case studies and a blog. And I'm going to be trying to put up some innovation techniques, some some uh, things you can use to um, uh, to perform innovation better. So uh, we're redesigning that site right now. But uh, by the first of the year, which is when I think this podcast will come out, it should mm-hmm. be up and going. Excellent. Yeah, the new one should be there then. And I will make sure there are links in the show notes for this too to make it easy to get to uh, robertsoninnovation.com. Dave, I appreciate your time. Thanks for telling us about your recent research work and those case studies and how to find out more about you also at robertsoninnovation.com. Thanks, Dave. Thanks again for listening. Find the summary of the discussion with Dave at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 160. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.